change the way we measure justice rather than through the turning of calendar pages, but through an effort, an individual's effort to reconcile and become one with American citizens. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, my friends, to the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 93. Before we get into today's show, I want to take a second to let you know about Health Excellence Select, an amazing alternative to Obamacare, which utilizes health sharing to cover your medical costs. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is the author of seven books about the U.S. prison system, including the book Earning Freedom, which I recently read. What's most impressive about that feat is that he wrote them all while serving 26 years in federal prison, during which time he also earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. He is now a consultant and the host of his own podcast, Earning Freedom. Michael Santos, welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. I am thrilled to be with the Lions of Liberty and thrilled to have my own liberty now after more than 9,500 days of imprisonment. Thank you for having me. Oh, Michael, I'm, I'm thrilled that you have your freedom as well, and I'm thrilled that you're able to come on and talk about this this amazing story of yours today. And maybe the idea of serving 26 years in prison in and of itself isn't necessarily amazing because literally millions of people serve those sentences you know, all the time here in the United States, many of those for crimes that didn't necessarily have victims but what's so unique about your story is the way that you dealt with the circumstances and the way you dealt with your term and how you didn't let it get to you you didn't let it destroy your character and destroy you as a person in fact you used it as a personal mission to discipline yourself and to create a better life for yourself once you left prison and you had a, a really true vision and i highly recommend people reading the book earning freedom it's, it's a really a great story a great read and you know I, I appreciate everything you've done but before we get into that stuff michael why don't you just start at the beginning for us how exactly did you land in jail with a 26 year break i believe your actual sentence was 45 years you're expecting to serve at least 26 of those so how did you find yourself in jail what was the actual crime that you committed yeah so back in 1987 i saw well actually a little before around 1985 i saw this great movie some of you guys may have heard it there's a line there in this country first you get the money then you get the power then you get the woman so those who can't really mock my tony montana accent (laughs) It was Scarface. I saw that movie when I was about 20 years old and thought it'd be a kind of a cool way to live my life. Moved to Miami, began transporting uh, cocaine from Miami to Seattle. I was arrested about 18 months later, and I was uh, faced with a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. When the jury returned its verdict of guilt, I had this epiphany that I wanted to transform my life. I recognized that I'd made every bad decision a young guy could make. And while I was in that uh, jail cell, I just said I was going to transform my life and, and, and think about people like you, Mark, who are fighting for liberty and say, well, I want to work hard to be a good American. And that, that principle approach would, would guide me through every day of my journey. Uh, my judge did sentence me to 45 years in prison, but under the laws that were existed at that time, uh, a 45-year sentence could be concluded in 26 years, provided that the individual didn't get any trouble in prison. So I served every day of my sentence, 26 years, and every day it was that vision of connecting with society and, and working hard to become a good citizen is what guided every step I took. 
I want to talk about your actual sentence again for a second. You said the original sentence was 45 years. Now, you had no violent history. You had no, you know, there was no charges of violence associated with this. This was your first time offense. How did you actually get a sentence that was so incredibly high for, for someone with, you know, no prior history and no, no violent charges at all? So United States of America is the world's largest incarcerator, both on a per capita basis and on a uh, overall basis. We incarcerate more than 2.3 million people. I consider our nation's commitment to mass incarceration to be one of the greatest social injustices of our time that perpetuates intergenerational cycles of failure. I feel very passionate about it. The way that it happened was is that when I got arrested in 1987, we were just on this hyperbolic move to uh, incarcerate more people and have people serve sentences that are far too long. Drug crimes were among the first to be really hit with extraordinarily long sentences, despite, in my, as you said, in my case, there were no allegations of violence. There were no allegations of weapons. I was just a young kid who was under some bad influences, made some really bad decisions, and without a doubt, I deserved to be incarcerated, deserved to be convicted. I think that the great injustice, though, is when we lock people in, in cages for multiple decades, despite an individual's efforts to reconcile and become one with society. That's the fundamental flaw in our system. And you're not trying to claim you were a great guy or you didn't commit the crimes you were accused of. I mean, you weren't, uh, you know, heroically trying to transport cocaine to people to to save their lives or anything like that. You admit you were in it for the money. You were a young kid. You saw Scarface. You saw Tony Montana. He looked so cool to you and you thought that would be a cool life to live. And, you know, we, we can't we can say you weren't necessarily a um, an upstanding citizen at that point. But, you know, there, there are so many kids that, that can fall into that trap so easily and follow the money. But the question is, should, is does locking them behind the bars for multiple decades actually help them as a person or help society in any way? And that's what we really need to examine here. And now, when you just first heard about that sentence and you knew you were going to go in for 26 years, what was the first thoughts that came to your mind? I mean, did you just think your life was over or did you immediately have that resolve to take this and turn it into the biggest positive that you could? I was in a jail cell facing a sentence of life without the possibility of parole because I had this transformation after I was convicted. When I was arrested, the only thing I thought about was getting out of jail. I had no remorse. I wasn't prepared to accept responsibility. Didn't really appreciate the magnitude of problems that I had created for myself. And I had a lawyer who was telling me that I was going to win. And so that's all I cared about. It wasn't until I was convicted that I recognized I'm in trouble. I made some bad decisions. I am really in a, in a bad place because I was facing life without parole. That was the potential sentence the judge could have given me, and I knew I was going to be sentenced to a long time. So I you know, start to pray. You start to ask for guidance some kind of way, and I found that guidance, ironically, in a philosophy book. I start flipping through the pages. I find the story of Socrates. I'm inspired by him because he is sentenced to death and he has this opportunity to escape his jail cell, escape his sentence, and live in exile. But instead he says, no, I, I live in a democracy. And in a democracy we have the right to work toward changing laws, but we don't have the right to break laws. And when I read that passage, I, I still remember putting that book on my chest as the walls and the ceilings were closing in on me, extinguishing hope. And I just said, I have got to find a way to do that. I've got to be thinking about law-abiding citizens and saying, what can I possibly do 
to reconcile, to earn my freedom, to earn liberty? Is there anything I can do? And I came across with this three-pronged plan that was going to guide my direction. It was, it was as if I were in a labyrinth and this plan was going to become my, my way out. And I just focused on working to educate myself, to contribute to society, and to build a meaningful support network. And that's what guided me through each of the 9,500 days that I served. And every time you say that number, uh, what is it again, 9,000? I, I was a federal prisoner for 9,500 days. Wow. In fact, I concluded my sentence on the day that Eric Holder made his speech in San Francisco claiming that we incarcerated too many people in this country and they served sentences that are far too long. That was the very day that I was concluded my obligation to the wow. Bureau of Prisons. And you're there raising your hand saying, yeah, I, I think you're, you're on to something, <laughs> Mr. Holder. I always knew that there would be a movement to kind of change and reform the prison system. I didn't know it would happen, really start getting momentum the day that I concluded my obligation, but that's okay. I feel as though... I have a duty and a responsibility to educate American citizens on why our nation's commitment to mass incarceration influences every citizen because the extraordinary resources that we are deploying to keep people in prison despite their not being in prison is taken from health care, is taken from infrastructure, is taken from education, is taken from so many areas that could have so much more value in society. But there's this huge ecosystem built around the mass incarceration movement, and they control the narrative. Thanks to podcasts like yours and opportunities to, to, to reach out, I intend to change that narrative. You use this phrase a lot, that the United States is obsessed with mass incarceration. So why do you believe that is? Why do you think that this culture and, and the way we view laws, why do you think we think that locking so many people up for massive amounts of time is the solution to these things? Well, I think that there is a great uh, movement behind, there has been a great movement behind building up, and now there, there are billions of dollars, tens of billions of dollars that are being spent around this. There's a, there's a group of powerful lobbyists that control the narrative, and as they control the narrative, they influence the voters. So they put this, this it's kind of like during, uh, let's, let's hearken to the, you know, the 1600s when there was the witch hunts in Salem. Okay, there are people that will control this narrative for what reason? For political gain, for many different reasons. And, you know, voters, they listen to this and they said, yes, we absolutely need to have longer sentences. But the reality is, as people in the know will, will recognize, we incarcerate people, far too many people, and they serve sentences that are far too long. I was as ready to emerge from prison and live as a law abiding citizen as I ever would have been. After eight years, by then I'd earned a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. I was only 30 years old. I could have launched a career, had a family. But instead, there was no mechanism that would allow me to get out. And I served another, what, 18 years? Nine, no, yeah, another 18 years in prison at a huge cost to taxpayers. There was nothing I learned. There was nothing that corrected me. And yet there was no mechanism through which I could earn freedom. And that's a fundamental flaw. So I think that the reason, to, to answer your question, is because voters have been inappropriately influenced by financial lobbyists who have an interest in keeping this system growing. And it's my job to try and change that narrative. Let's talk a little bit more about exactly how you went about your plan to earn your freedom while in prison. First of all, how did you go about 
obtaining a bachelor's degree and a master's degree while in jail. Obviously, this isn't the path that most prisoners take. Many people end up involved with gangs, uh, involved with violence. Many people probably just give up hope. And, and, you know, I know a lot of people in prison, as you mentioned, will you know, brew a sort of fake alcohol and just be drunk in jail and, and just kind of just go inside themselves and forget about their, a life outside of prison. But you did quite the opposite. You focused solely on your future life outside of prison, even when it was 26 years away at a minimum. So how did you actually go about this process of educating yourself and earning these degrees while behind bars? So let's put that in perspective for your audience. Sure. Um, you're right. 26 years I served. So to, to, to put that in perspective, somebody was 23 years old and he was locked up today, he would not be emerging from that experience for 26 years. So that's that 2041. Despite that length of time, the individual has to start thinking, how do I want to come out of here? And my vision was always very clear. I wanted to put on a suit and tie and have nobody know that I served a day in prison unless I told them. So I said, well, I just had to reverse engineer. How am I going to make that happen? Well, I have to focus on developing my communication skills. I have to focus on developing academic credentials that people in society would respect. I had to focus on figuring out ways that I could contribute to society despite my imprisonment. How can I transcend these walls? And the only way that I figured out was by using a pen, learning how to put words on a page, send those pages out, have them turned into books where university students can read them. And when I knew that that was happening, I was executing my third plan, which was to build a support network. If I had books out there, people would read my books, people would reach into me, and they would start to see me as something other than a prisoner. And that's really what drove me. That's what made me passionate, was to be able to find this this connection with, with law-abiding citizens, which is really ultimately what I thirsted to become, just a citizen, uh, somebody who was an American. Because while I was incarcerated, if I didn't have that, that strategy of visualize, plan, execute, I would not have been able to muster the discipline and the energy to reject all of the negativity that prisons sow. It's, prisons, they, they do extinguish hope. And those people who don't grasp I really, uh, I really attribute the infrastructure of confinement for, for, for fostering that, that type of a movement, that type of a bad system. So it's my job to change it. I was very blessed to have read the story of Socrates, to be inspired by Socrates, and I, con- I, I intend to continue uh, working to inspire others. That's what my Earning Freedom podcast is all about. Now, is this something that anybody that's behind bars can just do? Can anybody behind bars just go ahead and earn their bachelor's degree, earn their master's degree, and and write books from prison? Or was that easy to do? Or what kind of obstacles were put in your way during this process? I can't imagine that that being behind bars, being in the situation, makes doing this stuff terribly easy. Well, here's the challenge. Anybody can do what you're doing, Mark, if they take the initiative, if they have the will, if they have the drive. I had the drive to want to be a good citizen, and nothing was going to get in my way. That didn't mean that the infrastructure of confinement didn't erect enormous obstacles, transferring me in chains from across state lines, from prison to prison. The more work that I did toward publishing and writing and connecting, the the prison system, you see, is designed to to, to quash that spirit. In the United States, we like to point our accusatory fingers at other countries and talk about the violation of human rights. 
But when we talk about what is a fundamental human right, I think that anybody who's thinking about it would say it's the right to communicate. It's the right to connect. It's the right to free, for freedom of association. But while, while we say that other countries are depriving people of human rights, here in the United States, we deprive freedom of communication to 2.3 million people every day. And they're not only violating the human rights of the people in prison, they're violating the First Amendment rights of every American citizen who doesn't know what's going on in there. That's the reality. We've got to, I've got, I want, I'm obsessed with breaking that, that disconnect so that I could explain to voters, I could explain to other Americans why we need to reform this system to inspire more people to pursue excellence, to change the way we measure justice rather than through the turning of calendar pages, but through an effort, an individual's effort to reconcile and become one with American citizens. Wow, Michael, that, that's just really amazing. So, can you, and you mentioned a lot of the obstacles that were put in your way. Can you describe a little bit the, some of the specific obstacles? And one thing that struck me reading your book is that every time you seem to be getting somewhere, you, you, you'd, you'd get some of your writing published or you would advance a certain way in your education, you would suddenly be faced with a transfer, a transfer. And, and you at the time were seeing your wife, Carol, and you know she would move with you wherever you were. So not only would this screw up your whole attempts to become a better citizen and to educate yourself and to publish these books, it would also really mess up your attempts to, to keep your family together here as well. So can, can you describe just how these transfers would just come up randomly and and why do you think that was was part of it maybe that the celebrity you were sort of gaining through your writing yeah it's a, that's absolutely what it was in fact i was told that they would tell me the administrators would tell me when they would provide me with a disciplinary infraction for publishing they would you know lock me in the shoe and they'd ask me why why do i continue doing this and i said i do this because i believe that i have a duty to work toward preparing myself for a law-abiding life when i get out And they said, we don't care anything about your life when you get out. All we care is that you serve your sentence. And every time you reach beyond these walls and try and influence people, you are interfering with what we consider security of the institution. Just stay in here and be silent. And I said, I'm not going to stay in here and be silent. I can write from anywhere, and I will. And I was blessed to have an incredible wife who who supported my mission. And we would get transferred. I would get locked in segregation. But I kept up the fight because I believed it was important, not only for me, but for causes that were much bigger than me. As the system continued to perpetuate its growth, I continued to show we can do better. We are an enlightened society, and we can do better. And so they blocked me from getting my doctorate degree, uh, telling me that American citizens don't want people in prison getting PhDs. You've already gotten too much education. So they blocked me from getting a PhD. Every time I published, they would lock me in the, sh- in the segregated housing unit, transfer me across state lines, disrupt my family. Did they disrupted the two fundamental areas that demonstrate an individual is more likely to function in society as a law-abiding citizen is education and family and community ties. The system exquisitely works to block that. Why? Well, I purport that it's because we have had a misguided commitment to mass incarceration, and that's been funneled by a lobbying group that wants to see it grow. And so it's my job to try and change that, and that's what I do every day. There were many people along the way that helped you out and helped you get to where you are today. So can you describe how there is a culture in prison in many ways that sort of chastises people who are even kind to prisoners or or give them any sort of special privileges at all? Can you describe that a little bit, how that culture can kind of even, even from within the own prison system, sort of turn on anybody that is seen as being favorable to prisoners, maybe even if it's just helping their education? 
The prison system is a total institution. It controls what the individuals eat. It controls what they wear. It controls where they sleep. It controls their access to anything beyond the walls. And there's a culture that exists within there, an infrastructure that exists within that institution. And that in that infrastructure, it is designed to perpetuate itself. The primary goal is to what's called preserve security, not to prepare for a law-abiding life, not to improve community safety, but strictly preserve security. And so in that, within that culture, what happens is if you want to advance in that culture, if you want to rise from prison guard to prison captain to warden, you cannot be perceived as being you know, an inmate lover. You cannot be perceived as being a hug-a-thug. And so the, the default response is no. Issue is to answer no to any request or to issue disciplinary infractions and to prolong the journey in prison rather than help an individual succeed. Now, at that same time, that's what I said. That's the infrastructure, the institution of the, of the system, of the culture. But within that culture, guess what? There are human beings. And many of the human beings will look at and identify with you as a human being. And I was blessed to have had support on an individual level from many people within the prison system who allowed me to, to get my education or allowed me to break through some of the barriers to the, to the extent that they could. But the reality is, is they could not, they were prohibited from, say, writing a letter of recommendation for me. Despite this, I said, look, I'd like to write a letter of recommendation for you, but I can't. And who would have been better? They saw me every day in there, how hard I worked. And here's the irony, Mark. When somebody would see me in prison after the, the, the months had turned into years and the years had turned into decades, they would look at me and say, how is this? You don't look like you've been in prison for 25 years. And I'd always have to tell them, well, isn't that ironic? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, when you see somebody who looks as a law-abiding citizen, you don't say, what are we doing well in this system? You say, you know, we're not expect we're expecting to see failure, and you're not failure, and so you're disrupting my expectation. And we need to change the expectations. We need to change the expectations so that we look at every person in there and say, what can we do so that more people come out as law-abiding, tax-paying citizens? But we don't do that. It seems like such the opposite of what prisons should be if they are really about reforming people and really about improving society. Because you know, if I'm the warden of a prison and I've got a guy here who's earning a PhD, I want him to earn that PhD so I can say, look what happens in my prison. In my prison, people educate themselves. In my prison, people improve their lives. But that seems like it's such the opposite of the culture that it, that is induced there. Now, there was one prison that really stood out to me in your book, and that was FCI McKean. And they seem to really run things in a, in a completely different way than any other of the other systems you were in, even including the, the nicer camps you were in towards the end of your sentence. So can you describe that system of FCI McKean and, and how it was so different and what, what we can learn from how they ran their prison there? So the reason it was different is there was a leader running the institution. His name was Dennis Luther. He was the warden. At the time, he was the longest tenured warden in the Bureau of Prisons, and he chose to lead by example. So he would govern his institution through the promise of incentives rather than the threat of punishment, meaning he would hold town hall meetings. He would tell the group, he says, look, there's nothing I can do to change the past. You've been sentenced to your term. I can't change that. But what I can do is influence the way that you live in here. 
And so if you abide by the rules, if you work toward you know, improving your life, I'm going to deploy resources in every way that I can to help you. But if you choose to, to behave badly, well, then I'm going to install more fences. I'm going to install more security cameras. I'm going to put more guards on duty. I am going to you know, lock you in the hole. I'm going to lock, lock the units down. It's, it's up to you. And so he would install this culture within his institution because he is the CEO and he can choose how he is going to do it to create a different culture. And he did. And I had a great amount of respect and admiration for him because I knew he was fighting a culture. But that's what leaders do. He's a leader, not a manager. He was not a bureaucrat. He was looking at the way that we build great companies, that we build great teams, that we pursue excellence. And said, that's the way I'm going to govern my prison. And so I worked hard to try and get in that institution. And I made the best possible use of my time while I, while I was there. Um, and, you know, I was very, I've considered myself blessed to have, to have known Dennis Luther. That's where I got my master's degree in his institution. And unfortunately, during your time at FCI McKean, this great leader, Warden Luther, did retire. And there was a drastic change in the way the prison was operated once, once a new warden came in. So can you describe how that, how that change take place and what, you know, what differences you actually saw there? Sure. Well, within three months of Warden Luther's retiring, we had a riot caused over a million dollars in damage. Why? Because the new regime came in and said, oh, we don't like what's going on here in McKean. It's fundamentally different from our boilerplate type of prison that extinguishes hope and removes incentives. So they pulled everything out that he had installed. And three months later, we had 1,800 people there in that institution, or 1,500 people or so in that institution. And there was a riot. They lit fires. They damaged property. There was no violence on human beings, but they were, you know, just reacting in the way that people react when there is no hope. I, what got me through the journey was I always had hope, hope of coming back to society as a good person, hope of coming back to society as somebody who said, I want the world to judge me in the way that I responded to bad decisions, not because of the bad decisions. People in there, when they have no hope, they respond in a different way. And that's what the new warden did. He took out the hope. We had a riot. And when you, when you ask, if, when you made that statement, I just want to go back, if I may, sure. to that section where you said that if I were a warden, I'd want somebody to get a PhD. Well, you got you to gotta think that through and say, how are we defining success? If the prison system is designed to succeed in such a way, say, yeah, we want more people coming out of prison as law-abiding, well-educated systems, you would manage that institution and that environment in one specific way. But if you said, no, I want to manage this institution in a manner that it perpetuates itself and grows, well, then I'm going to manage it in a different way. I'm going to extinguish hope rather than deploy incentives. And if you're a prison part of the prison lobbying group or the guards group, what do you want? You want to see growth. You want to see your career grow. If there was no recidivism in the United States, how would this prison economy grow? It wouldn't grow. If everybody who was in prison never went back to prison, what would happen to that institution? It would become smaller. And that is the inherent difference between an organization that strives for excellence versus an organization that strives to perpetuate itself. And prisons strive to perpetuate itself. And if you pursue a career in prisons, you, want, you may listen and talk about, oh, we want small government, but not if it affects my job. I want more people in prison. I want to become not a guard. I want to become a case manager and then a lieutenant and then a warden. And that's not going to happen unless this prison population continues to grow. We need more institutions. We need to lock more people up. 
We need to lock the people up. We need to make sure that their children are getting locked up. And that's why our country, which is the land of the free and the home of the brave, has turned into the world's greatest, largest incarcerator. Wow. And now, Michael, so many people associate anybody that's a, a criminal or has that, that felony label attached to them um, as, you know, they associate that with violent people or even with people like yourselves, with people who are drug dealers, people that a lot of people think should be behind bars for whatever reason. Uh, but, you know, in your time in jail, you also, especially towards the end of your term when you were serving in, um, in, in more camp-type prisons, you encountered a lot of white-collar criminals. And many people might see white-collar criminals as these just rich, greedy CEOs who deserve what little cozy time they got behind bars for, for whatever they may have done, whatever financial crimes they may have committed. But in reality, many of these white-collar criminals even did not intend to commit a criminal act, and yet they find themselves the subject of all sorts of law enforcement investigations nonetheless. So can you just touch on what you learned from all the white-collar criminals that you met? What role do the, do the erroneous federal regulations play in creating criminals out of many of these otherwise just law-abiding, jobs-creating businessmen? Well, that's the great irony is that our because of this commitment to mass incarceration, uh, we are looking for new pastures. We're looking to lock more people up. And so there are t- thousands and thousands of laws on the federal books that can result in imprisonment, whether there is any criminal intent or not. And in Earning Freedom, I believe it was Earning Freedom. It may have been one of my other books. I told the story of Arnie Benjus, who was incarcerated not because – he broke any laws in the United States, but he was in South Africa, and he was a fisherman. And after, as a white person in South Africa, after apartheid, they had to drastically reduce his quota of, of lobsters that he could catch in the ocean. And he broke that law. South Africa never prosecuted him. They charged him civilly, and he paid the fine. But because his largest customers were Red Lobster and other American companies, when he was vacationing in the United States, he was indicted. Not for anything he did in the United States, but for violating what's called the Lacey Act, meaning he fished lobster in the Indian Ocean, (laughs) and he ended up going to jail for six years. Wow, that is unbelievable. I met a number of white-collar offenders who said, yeah, I did. I fished the the lobsters. I went over my allotment of lobsters. He was in jail for six years. For breaking no U.S. law whatsoever. Not even being in the United States. It wasn't until he came to visit the United States that he was indicted. Why? Because there is a movement to bring more people into this system. I've met CEOs of publicly traded companies who didn't have any financial gain personally. They didn't have any criminal intent. But because of Sarbanes-Oxley, as the CEO, if they sign a document, there are criminal implications. He can outsource the decision to the CFO, to the general counsel, to the HR director, and he's trusting these people to give him good documents. When he signs his name to that document, regardless that there is no financial enrichment, no even allegations of financial enrichments, no allegations of criminal intent, you go to prison for a year and cost tens of millions of dollars in the legal suit against it. Because of this movement, we are, our system is rife with accusations of prosecutorial misconduct, of subverting evidence that would exonerate somebody. Why? Because we are focused on convictions, not on justice. we got to keep the system growing, and we're going after it anywhere we can. And that's why I feel so strongly about spreading this word. Americans need to understand how easily, with 10,000 federal laws on the books, how easily they can be prosecuted and brought into the criminal justice system.
Michael, your story is absolutely fascinating. I've got just a few more questions for you, but first, I need to take a minute to tell everyone about our sponsor, Health Excellence Select. Now, until last year, I was just like you guys. I saw my health insurance cost double and my deductible skyrocket thanks to the Obamacare health insurance mandates. Determined not to participate in this corporatist scheme, I sought an alternative and found out about health sharing, a fantastic concept in which your monthly fees go directly to pay the medical bills of others, not into the pockets of some crony capitalist fat cat. Health Excellence Select combines health sharing with a patient care personal assistant, 24-7 phone access to board-certified physicians, and discounts on dental, vision, and other benefits. The best part is that for most people, plans with Health Excellence Select are much more affordable than Obamacare insurance, and it meets the legal mandate, so you will not be fined for using it in lieu of insurance. That's Health Excellence Select. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. Michael, I always like to ask my guests for a book recommendation, and I'm going to personally recommend Earning Freedom, which I just read, and we'll, of course, link to that as well as all your other books in the show notes, but I know you did a lot of reading during your 26 years in jail, too, so do you have any books that you would recommend out there to our listeners, maybe about the subject of prisons or anything else you think they might find interesting? Well, I I know that uh, I can tell you a book that had an influence on me as I began to transition, get ready to transition into society. It was a book called What Got You Here? won't get you there. And it was a story that talks about the decisions that allow us to, to, to make incremental growth in our life is going to be different at one stage of our journey than from the other. And I, th- I found that to be very powerful. I believe the author is Marshall Goldsmith. He was a professor at USC. And of course, I, uh, since I know that this is a libertarian network, for those who haven't read it, I'm sure everybody has, you got to read Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Let you know that we've all got a duty to be the best that we can be. I like to play a little thought exercise here just for a second. Let's do it. Now, imagine you were appointed, for whatever reason, the head of the U.S. Bureau of Prisons. Now, what is the number one reform you would make immediately upon ascending to that office? Well, that's that's a different uh, element. That, uh, the Bureau of Prisons is really an administrative function, so they don't have the right to do what I'd like to do, which is create a system through which individuals can earn gradual stages of liberty. I would love to see a system that incentivized a pursuit of excellence. And so if an individual was working to educate himself, was working to build strong community ties, was working to develop a skill set that would allow him to function and contribute to society, I would absolutely create a mechanism that would allow him to earn gradually increasing levels of liberty, including his release when warranted and appropriate. And I would do it in an objective way that I would model it after the education system. You complete these requirements, you get an A. You complete these requirements, you get a degree. You get a degree, you can advance to the next level. I think that that has worked fundamentally well in the United States, and I'd love to see a system that that incentivizes excellence, incentivizes individuals to become the best citizens that they can be, rather than telling individuals, we don't care anything about your life after release. All we care about is the institution the, the institution of corrections. Now, Michael, I, I don't know everybody that's listening to my podcast right now personally, but honestly, with the number of crimes out there and the number of people that are arrested every day, it's not that impossible to think that someone might be listening right now who is facing the prospect of jail time. So what would your message be out there to anyone listening right now who might be facing the prospect of going to prison? Well, that's a very important question because the decisions that an individual makes at the earliest stages of the journey 
have enormous implications going forward. It has an implication when he's preparing for trial. It has an implication when he's preparing for sentencing. It has an implication when he is going into the prison system. And it is a fundamentally different world from anything else in the United States. In the United States, we, we love freedom. We love liberty. We decry communism. But it's alive and well in our prison system where everybody is a number, where everybody is reduced, where you serve the state, where there is no private property. And so you have to understand that and then figure out, how am I going to navigate my way through that in the most effective way, in the strongest, most possible way? So it's very important to educate yourself on how to play this game. And then if you understand this game, then you can navigate your way through that labyrinth, come back strong with your dignity intact and live a new life. And that's really what my whole message is about. You've got to prepare from the beginning, and you've got to understand it's not only about the charge. It's about how am I going to overcome this and come out in the best possible way. So I would really encourage that individual to learn. Listen to people who've gone through it, educate themselves, and prepare for success. We've got to live in the world as it exists, not as we want it to be. And we want to believe in justice. We want to believe that there's no way I'm going to be drawn into this, this quicksand and have my life sucked out of me where it influences my family, my career, everything. So you gotta, you got to say, okay, i got to understand. I'm in it. Let me figure out a way how to come out the other side strong. You know, it's a really great message, Michael, because one of the biggest criticisms I often get about what we do, about our website, about all the writing we do, about you know speaking about all the, the injustices we find in the world, is not about the actual issues themselves. It's about why. They'll say, why? Why bother? You know, the system's not going to change. The, the things are the way they are. You can't just change things. And to me, that, that, that is absurd. Of course we can change things. Things got this way. For a reason, they got this way because people had bad ideas about some certain things, and just like the prison system developed in a way because of a lot of bad ideas that people had, and to just decide that it can never change and decide we can never change anything you know, outside of ourselves is to just give up hope. And, and what's the purpose of even living if that's the way I see it? And and there's you certainly more than anyone else had reason to feel no hope, had reason to feel like your life was over, but you did the exact opposite. People might have told you in prison, "Why are you doing this? Why bother with a bachelor's degree? Why bother with a master?" degree you're a, you're a prisoner you're a felon you're nothing more but you didn't look at it that way you looked at it as no i'm not gonna i'm not just gonna decide that things are the way they are and things are the way they're always gonna be and you didn't just improve yourselves though you've also improved the lives of many with your work uh with your writing i mean i mean you almost became someone that people would look to when they came into jail because they had already read your writing before they had gone to jail so it's, it's very impressive what you've done and what you continue to do because you have, of course, dedicated your, your whole life to this, really. So what, can you just describe before I let you go what you're doing today to help people with everything you've learned in your 26 years in prison? Well, let's remember that while I was incarcerated, I'd never sent an email. I'd never used a cell phone. I'd never seen or experienced the internet. And here you are podcasting just le- two years later. Yeah, I used to be in prison and dream about the internet. And when I came out, I've just gone all in. I taught for a year at San Francisco State University. I learned how to use the web, how to build a website, learned how to pot. Now I'm learning how to podcast. And I'm extraordinarily excited and passionate about this work and trying to spread this message, not necessarily only about the prison system, because my, this, my story is not only about prison. It's about the human spirit. It's about we could all be in a prison. Since I've come back to society, I've met people who are in a bigger prison than I ever was. 
And it's all in their mind where they don't know how to dig deep and find that passion and go forward and create a life of meaning and relevance and contribution. And so I'm very passionate about spreading this message through my new website at michaelsantos.com and the podcast on earning freedom. I intend to to really come out and, and help people understand why we can all work toward building something better rather than suppressing hope. And I'm very passionate about it. I'm very excited about it. Very grateful to have connected with your listeners. And I just want to thank you and all of the Lions of Liberty out there for giving me this opportunity to share my story. I'm completely transparent and open. There's nothing that anybody can't ask me. If some of your guests have follow-up questions, let me know, and I'll be very happy to talk about them. Absolutely, and if you have follow-up questions for Michael, feel free to post on our social media. Feel free to drop me an email, mark, M-A-R-C, at lionsofliberty.com, and we'll pass them along. Maybe we, we can even do a follow-up or something like that, because uh, you know, it's definitely a fascinating story. We only touched on a small sliver of, of what you went through in prison and your personal journey, so I do highly encourage people to check out your books, check out your website, check out the Earning Freedom podcast, and we'll link to all this stuff in the show notes. Michael Santos, thank you so much for joining me today, and I wish you the best of luck. It was a great honor. Thank you for, for your interest in my work. Absolutely, Michael. Take care. Bye-bye. Hey, guys. Mark Claire here, lionsofliberty.com, where we strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily. We bring you the Morning Roar. That's right. Every Monday to Friday, we'll have a brand new edition of the Morning Roar, where we provide a roundup of some news stories that you may not find in the mainstream media or even in your typical social media news feed. We find stories that relate to the ideas of liberty and provide you with our liberty perspective on them. We wrap it all up every Friday with Felony Friday, where our own John Odermatt goes out and takes a look at some sort of felony. There's felonies committed every day, you know, whether it's a felony committed by the police, a politician, or even an average citizen. You can find all of this and so much more over at lionsofliberty.com, advancing the ideas of liberty daily. Your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview today with Michael Santos. And my God, if you if you look at this guy, look him up on the Internet, or if you hear him on my show, he does not sound or look like a guy who spent 26 years behind bars. But indeed, he did. And he did that for the crime or the non-crime from our point of view of selling cocaine. Now, of course, it was a crime in the codified laws of the United States. But should it have been? Michael's perspective is amazing. He even says, you know, I broke the law. I should be incarcerated. But I mean, as far as I'm concerned, he never committed any violent acts. And you can say cocaine is something people should be taking. And I won't disagree with you. It, it probably is a dangerous drug. It's something people often get addicted to, just like they get addicted to heroin and many other substances, just like they get addicted to pharmaceutical drugs that are approved by the FDA. And yet those are perfectly legal and nobody goes behind bars for selling those either. So it's a very contradictory system that we have. Uh, but despite his terrible sentence and despite the adversity he faced by being put in the jail, Michael Santos looked at it in a way that is just amazing and unbelievable, and it should be inspiring to everybody listening to the show, because we all have moments in our life where we're down on things, or we don't think we're doing enough, or we're not making enough progress with our projects or in the world, and yet... Here we are, you know, we can't sit around moping while Michael Santos is stuck in a cell for 26 years improving his life. He got a bachelor's degree. He didn't have a degree before that. He got a bachelor's degree. He got a master's degree. 
He connected with his wife. We didn't mention this in the interview, but his wife, Carol, he was he kind of knew her in high school, but then he didn't connect with her until he had been in jail for many years through a series of writing letters. Then she came to visit him, and that relationship actually prospered while he was behind bars. He got married to her while he was behind bars, and now he comes out of prison with, you know, set up in life. Uh, you know, he's made a name for himself. He's made something for himself. He's educated himself. He's made a family for himself, and he came out of jail with all of this intact, all of this in place. And it's just such an amazing story. And I really wanted to share it with everybody today. Uh, you know, we don't always get into as many personal tales of, of people. And Michael's is just incredible to me. I really do highly recommend his book, Earning Freedom, and his other books as well. We'll, of course, link all of those in the show notes at lionsofliberty.com. But, you know, I really encourage you to look more into Michael's work, look more into the concepts of what is a right? What is a crime? What are we calling criminal in the society? And really, we need to look at this prison system and how it perpetuates people coming back into it. I mean, most people leave prison. They are not set up like Michael Santos. The prison system does not set up to help people like Michael Santos who want to better themselves, who want to contribute to society, who want to be better people. The system really pushes you down. It it destroys people's hope. It destroys people's integrity. It destroys any chance they feel that they might have to succeed in society. And that's why we have such a high recidivism rate where people often return to prison shortly after their release because they know nothing more than a life of crime. They don't come out with things set up. They don't come out with a career. They don't come out with a family like Michael Santos did. He is by far the exception to the rule, and we should encourage people to follow his example, but at the same time, we need to change these laws, and we need to change this system. We absolutely need to, because as he said, 2.3 million people in prison in the United States. Now, maybe some of those people belong to be in prison. I think that's possible. I think it's likely that some of them belong in prison. If you are violent, if you murdered somebody in cold blood, if you're a rapist, sure, you should be behind bars. But for merely exchanging a substance with somebody that they consensually agreed to purchase? No, I don't think so. And at the very least, if we're going to make criminal acts out of what I would not consider criminal acts, at the very least, shouldn't the system have the ability for people to, as Michael mentioned, earn their freedom? If you get a degree, maybe that proves something about you. You're getting yourself ready for society. If you write seven books, maybe that should show something about you know how you've developed as a person. If you've never been violent one time, either in prison or before prison, maybe there should be a way to have your sentence reconsidered. But the 26 years that he spent in prison, that was non-negotiable. That was the lowest amount he could possibly serve, no matter how well behaved, no matter how well he did for himself in jail. This, this stuff has to change, guys. Michael Sanders is the exception. And hopefully there can be more exceptions like him, but we shouldn't even need to make exceptions. It should be the rule. If we're going to have prisons like this, that they should be, allow people to improve their lives, allow them to become better people. And I'm so glad Michael's out there fighting for this change and striving to help people in his own life now, now that he's out of jail, now that he finally is truly free and has his liberty, he's using it to increase the liberty of others. And I applaud that. I'm going to literally applaud it right here in the Lions of Liberty Studios. Please do check out Michael's work. Please check out his excellent show, Earning Freedom. It's live on iTunes. Look it up. Of course, I hope you continue to check out our own show. You can find the full archive at lionsofliberty.com slash podcast. 
Every single day, Monday to Friday, you can find the Morning Roar over at LionsofLiberty.com. We have some weekend articles we're posting now. Always new and exciting content going on over at Lions of Liberty, continuing to strive to advance the ideas of liberty daily as we do every single day over at LionsofLiberty.com. Find us on our social media, Facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty, over on the old Twitter, at Lions of Liberty. You can find us on Google+. We have a YouTube channel now. Please go check us out on YouTube. I'd love to give it the URL, but it's just a series of numbers and letters but you can find us on youtube we will link to it in the show notes please check out michael santos book as i mentioned and until next week folks you know what i want from you it's to live long and live free (laughs) 